If anyone noticed, it's the middle of summer right now as you're listening to this. And if you knew anything for the last, if you're a real true Behavior Bitches fan, you know for the past two summers, we have taken a break. But this year is special because we are so on our game that we are recording out into the summer so that you guys don't have to go a single week or a single every other week without having us with you. So that's something I just want to say. We are so proud that we've done and being on our shit feels really good. It's behavior, bitches. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey. And we are here today with episode 144. Casey, today in our outline, you have written the rhyme. Mm-hmm. So I'm not surprised, but please, what do you have for us? It's not a bad one. So go. What is your rhyme today? Okay. Episode 144. Is your sex life a bore? Oh my God. Time to be a. Just kidding. I'm not going to rhyme anymore. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, guys, we're really excited for this podcast today. But before we get there, we have to give ourselves some reinforcement. You don't know. I mean, it's actually not that early in the morning, but for some reason, it feels like 5 a.m. For me, it's just one of those nights. Yeah, this is so, a, a 9.30 her time scheduled podcast. And I was like, I always get that like anxious, like, is she going to make it or not? I don't know. <laughs> I always make it, dude. Just, I'm there. <laughs> All, right, All right. Tell tell us what someone has to say that's nice about us. Let's see. Let's right. hear. This girl is awesome. Well, her name is Jasmine, the Jasinator. This show makes my mornings is what she titled it. Hey guys, I freaking love this podcast. I've been in the ABA field since May of 2019. I'm currently finishing up my hours to become a BCBA. I recently switched clinics and I drive an hour and a half to work every day. Damn girl. It seems crazy, but your podcast makes a drive fun. I look forward to my morning commute because I can't wait to listen to you guys chat and discuss ABA terms. I've also put off taking the test because I'm getting married this fall and want to focus on one thing at a time. Listening to your podcast has truly helped me keep all the terms fresh in my brain and it also helps me be ABA ready when I get to work. You guys are amazing and I'm so thankful for all that you are doing in the field. I cannot wait to join the collective next year. Love you, mean it, Jasmine. Jasmine, congrats. You have a lot of things going on over here. This is exciting. I actually think that's a great idea to put it off while planning your wedding a lot of people feel this pressure, like they need to take it immediately. And I would say that you could be like present in both things you're doing. I think it's a great idea. But yeah, keep and listening to us. We'll, we'll keep you up to date on what's going on in the lingo. And we can't wait to have you join the collective. Yay, yay, yay. Next year seems like so far, but the time goes by quick. Ain't that the truth? All, All right, right. Let's get into it. Jasmine, love you. But now it's time to get into our podcast today. It's a feeling, it's a bond, it's a motherfucking Skinner song. It's pretty notes, tapped Cooper book, really, really X-rated jokes. Liat and Casey will take you to exam and you'll be like, damn, I got this in the bag and my snap of swag, ay, All right, guys, unfortunately, the behavioral robot, his charger wasn't working. So I'm going to tell you some concepts to look out for in this episode. See if you could catch them. 
something we talk about in the episode, we talk about a risk-benefit analysis within different things. We talk about it both when we're talking about medication, taking medication for a lower libido versus the side effects, right? Whether it's depression medications or things like that. So that takes us back to our Shane episode with a risk-benefit analysis. We also talk about within here, we don't use the word, but if you think about it, when it's talking about being mindful and creating a higher presence of your partner or you know your sexual time, you really want to set that stimulus control of the environment, right? So if you're someone like me who's thinking of a million other things, you want to set stimulus control to be present in whatever you're doing. And as behavior analysts, you guys know that we use different indirect assessments. Just like that, within the field of OBGYN, they have they use a Likert scale as well for the sexual satisfaction survey. So they're getting that information as well, the same way we do in one of our assessments. And I just thought this was kind of cool to compare to our own science. So be listening out for those throughout the episode. Also, we're going to talk about respondent and operant behaviors and those reflexes we have. And I'll tell the behavior robot that you guys miss him. And before Casey does our intro, the person that we have on today is, it's a pretty cool connection because as you guys know, Alan, the man behind this entire podcast, who listens to our voices way more than I would like to ever hear (laughs) any of our voices. You know, we're always like, Alan, introduce us to someone cool, like you know, because like we're looking for the guests that come out to us, and he's like, and also his wife Melissa, who he works with, they work together. They're really cute, and they're like, okay, we have someone for you, and she actually records her podcast with us too, and we're like, okay, who is it, Casey? Who is it? All right, so her name is Dr. Sadaf. She is a board certified OBGYN. She's the host of the Muslim Sex Podcast and an executive coach for women based in New York. She graduated from the University of Michigan with her Bachelor's of Science in Biochemistry. She got her doctorate in osteopathic medicine at Michigan State University and completed her residency in gynecology and obstetrics in Michigan. She earned her certification as a life and executive coach from Rutgers University, and she's a sex counselor and educator. As a practicing OBGYN in New York for over 20 years, her mission has always been to empower and educate women. Most recently, she opened up a telehealth practice serving patients in New York and Michigan for sexual and menopausal health. She helps women with sexual confidence through coaching as well so that they can find pleasure in their relationships. She believes that all women, regardless of their backgrounds, have the potential to live life to its fullest. Welcome to the show. We're so excited to have you. Sadaf Lodi. Thank you so much. And thank you for that introduction. And thank you for having me on. I'm super excited to be on with you guys today. So you've created like an amazing following with this identity as being like a Muslim OBGYN talking about sexuality and what I, what I think is interesting, I think a lot of people would be like, that's an oxymoron. Yeah. Right? Because they're like, what? This seems like like sex. And can you talk a little bit about that? Like what made you decide to like 
share this and how people respond to what you're doing? <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, basically, I'm a board certified OBGYN, and I had been practicing obstetrics for a long time. And um, I just felt that there was a huge void in basically gynecology regarding sexual health and, um, you know, menopausal health and things of that nature. And really, to be honest, as uh, in medical school, we don't really get very much training at all regarding sexual health. And what we learn is maybe a few hours. So I would say maybe like three, four hours. And that's based on the Masters and Johnson research that they did in 1966 on old white men. And that talked about, you know, the male, basically the male sexual response cycle. And so then it wasn't until 2001 when Rosemary Basson, um, published her research and she talked about the female sexual response cycle and showed how that was much different than the male sexual response. And then also what I noted was that, you know, in different types of cultures, so not just, you know, Muslim culture, but say, for example, we have like, you know, Catholic culture and um, very strict Christians and, you know, all different people with different types of backgrounds. And I have some patients that are Mormons and they really have a lot of sex negativity that then shows up in their relationships. And, you know, some women exhibit something called vaginismus, where basically the lower third of their muscles around the vagina tighten up every time they have any type of penetration, whether it's a pelvic exam or a tampon, or it can be sexual intercourse. And so that there, there's a lot of thoughts that go through a person's head. And, you know, the reason why they experience vaginismus is because they're anticipating pain, right? It's the fear of pain. And so that's why their muscle then reacts to that. And I noted that in obstetrics and in gynecology, we don't, we don't focus on sex. We really don't. I mean, you'd be surprised. We spent four years of residency and we don't, at least in my training, we didn't get any instruction at all about sex or about relationships or anything like that. And, um, you know, most patients come to their gynecologists asking questions about that. And some women will ask about decreased libido, arousal, and things of that nature. And if we don't even get trained, how are we supposed to answer those questions? So that was really the impetus for me getting uh, an additional degree. So I actually have a certificate from the University of Michigan for sexual counseling and education. It's a year-long degree, um, certificate rather. And um, and so I have that as well. And I just thought it was so important um, to do that and to discuss that. And so you wanted to know how did that name come up with the Muslim Sex Podcast? So uh, basically my friend and I that started this podcast initially last year and um, she since has you know done a few other things. And um, so now it's just me, I'm the host. But um, she and I basically one day we were talking and she said, you know, she was asking me a question about sex. And uh, she said, you know, wouldn't it be great if, you know, you and I just had a podcast and we did a whole, you know, uh, show on just different aspects of basically gynecology and sex and things like that and things that nobody really talks about openly for sure. And, um, and everyone's interested, but, you know, not that many people are able to talk about it and to have those discussions and wouldn't it be great. So, 
we were thinking of the name and um and to be honest she came up with the name i was actually a little bit hesitant to call it <laughs> the muslim sex podcast but um she's like no no i think it's great you know nobody would even think to put those two words together and you know people are going to be look at it and be like what the heck what is this shock factor <laughs> yeah. so that's why and um and really the topics don't have you know are not specific to muslims it's really for anyone who's wanting to listen and learn but it, i mean it does create it does create an interest. I mean, even when we were making our name Behavior Bitches, it was like, as you said, like our field also was all old white men, <laughs> like, you know, bringing up the new science. When there was these two girls calling themselves bitches, they're like, what have we come to? All <laughs> our research, all these years, all Pavlov's poor dogs, and these girls are calling themselves bitches. Oh, my God. I was so more When she told me, like, we were talking about a podcast and I guess we're going on over four years now, but uh, that first me. year I was like, I, I was so scared. I was like, I cannot believe it was what we named ourselves. It's, and no one's ever going to want to come on. Like, but <laughs> I mean, it went the other way. So luckily those, awesome. we've had a lot of those older white men on the podcast so <laughs> and they love it. So I'm okay. It's cool. Well, I mean, I think what you're doing is awesome. And I love how you have so many diverse topics and you bring on someone who's, you know, competent in that. I just listened to one this morning about ADHD and intimacy. And it, you know, that is, I always think of Liat when I think of like, I'm like, I just can't picture her having sex. And the reason I say that is because I like, I can picture a lot of people having sex, but Liat, I can't because she's so ADHD and just like, get like shit done. Like there's never a time where she's like, just like chill and relax. That's not the ADD in me. That's the Adderall, honey. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yeah. Okay. Wait, I didn't hear this episode. Can you give me like a little synopsis on it? Because I would like to know about myself. So, yeah, I mean, um, I don't know, Casey, if you want to talk about it, mm -hmm. but I can talk about it too. Basically, I had a physician on that focuses on ADHD and um, she, she has ADHD. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. He has ADHD and she also coaches physicians on how to manage their ADHD and how to get things done and how to focus and things like that. And so her you know, journey was all about that. And what we talked about was ADHD and intimacy and basically how to try to be more mindful when you're with the person that you're with so that you're only focusing on one thing. And there's actually lots of research that's been done on that with that attributes mindfulness to increase in desire and increase in arousal. And that's because you're really focusing your mind on just one thing. And when you focus on that one thing, whether it be intimacy or whatever it is, you know, then your whole body starts to react toward that one thing. And so that was kind of the gist of it. And she talks about her journey and how she helps, you know, clients and patients, stuff like that. But, you know, the, the key thing for me, the takeaway is that, you know, when we are mindful in our relationships, that's going to automatically improve them and increase the intimacy and desire and arousal. Um, what did you think, Casey? What were, what were your takeaways? Yeah. I, I definitely, you know, knowing Liat and knowing her ADHD and listening to this lady, um, you know, you get where you are in life, you know, for someone like Liat and her, she's very, you know, at 36, she was like clinical 
director or whatever she was. I'm not even 36 yet. But I'm saying like, like you've gotten so far and done so much with, you know, I think your ADHD does fuel you. And then it's also that negative side of it of like being able to be mindful. And I think that was one of the things that, Leah, you had said, I think this year to me that your goal was to be more present and more mindful. Um, I said that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think it's hard. I think also that goes along with like Liat had just said is meds and intimacy. I know that um, since I was on Lexapro and my husband on Zoloft, it, it's, we're so different in our intimacy. And it's we just texted me this morning. He's like, remember when we used to like fool around and like do like s- sexual stuff, and now it's just like bam, bam. Okay, we got to do this. And I'm like, it made me sad. I'm like, oh, like is it ever going to get back to like pre? anti-depression depression med sex like do you hear that a lot yeah definitely so you know when we talk about decreased libido definitely one of the key things that affects libido and we all know this is our medications right different meds and different type of medical conditions and so with depression and anxiety you know we have those ssris which are the ones that you mentioned right the zoloft the lexapro and those absolutely affect your uh, arousal, your um, libido, and all of those things. So how can you get back to that? Well, you know, if there are, if there are not any medications that you can take that work as well as the ones that you're on, then I think what happens is that you have to be really intentional about your relationship, right? You have to really create those moments. You have to, again, be mindful when you're with that one person, you know, put away your phones, try to put away as many of the distractions as you can, and then create those date nights, right? So I think that the fallacy that we get into is that we think as we get older, um, you know, things just aren't spontaneous, right? And so I would rather say that, you know, even when we were younger, when we went out on a date and things like that, that we planned out everything, right? Even though it seemed spontaneous, we planned it out. We planned out where we were going to eat, where we were going to go, what we were going to wear, what our hair was going to look like, you know, what the night was going to look like, maybe how it was going to end. And so now, you know, as we're older and when we have to plan like date nights, we're like, wow, this really sucks. You know, like it's just not spontaneous, but, but it can be spontaneous, right? And you're, you're still doing the same thing. You're still planning it right? It doesn't take away anything from it. And so I think that we just have to realize that as we get older, that things are going to change, but that's okay, right? And to also know and love ourselves for who we are right now and not wait for maybe, I don't know, maybe when we, you know, say lose 10 pounds, or maybe when we're happier, or maybe when we buy that bigger house, or maybe when we get that new car, right? And just always waiting for the next step. Instead, just focus on the now and the present and just try to be happy and find that gift in everything that you do. And there's actually um, coaching that I do, which is called uh, Positive Intelligence, which is was created by this author. His name is Shirzad Shamin, and he is actually a lecturer at uh, Stanford and at Yale. And he talks about basic trying to find the gift in everything, right? Like say, say that you just got fired from your job or something like that, right? That, that sucks. But 
if you were to find the, you know, the gift in that, you could look at, well, <clears throat> you know, now this gives me time to focus on maybe your other interests or maybe uh, a path that you wouldn't have taken had you just stayed in the job that you absolutely hated anyways to begin with, right? And so now this is an opportunity to find something else and to do something else that maybe that you've been always wanting to do in the back of your mind, but you never gave yourself the chance, right? And so I think that that is really what's important. And so trying to find the happiness, trying to find the gift and trying to be that mindful in your relationship and in everything that you do, I think that will automatically increase the the desire and improve your relationship. And you don't need anything like crazy. You don't have to do anything really big. You can even just, you know, be intentional about hugging each other or just the physical touch, right? Just even holding somebody's hand, just walking outside. You know, lots of research has also shown that getting two hours of just daylight or just being outside in nature helps with mood and helps with happiness. So doing small things like that can help in relationships. I love that. I think that is, I think you put so much pressure on yourself of like, you know, you're busy all day work, whether you have kids or not. And it's like, so, you know, especially in our field, I know that like, and Leah and I talk about this, every woman that I've met in our field is like that very type A kind of like, you know, go, 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 taking care of everything, managing the house, managing the kids, managing the job. Um, but I love that finding the gift in everything and those little moments, like it doesn't have to be some big sexual experience. It could, like you said, go for a walk, hold hands, like yeah. start there. Yeah. Cuddle, just cuddling yeah. on the couch together. Right. Like it really doesn't have to be anything. It doesn't have to be expensive, you know, little things, making dinner together, just creating that intimate moments with each other. And really intimacy is just having that personal connection, right? Just having that time with each other. And I think that even those small little things will eventually lead to physical intimacy, right? There's so many different ways to create intimacy in a relationship. And, you know, if you're not looking for physical intimacy, that's okay too. You can create that emotional, that intellectual, that experiential intimacy that can eventually lead to physical intimacy if that's what you want. I like to me, that's one of the most important things, like emotional intimacy. I mean, also like in the fact that I got divorced this past year, like I realized like that is so important to me to feel that emotional intimacy with someone, like that connection of like, I mean, and that brings us to our next part, like attraction to someone's like thinking, their brain, the way they do things. And I know that on one of your posts recently, you uh, you like left a fill in the blank and it was like, what is the most powerful sexual organ in your body? Yeah. Maybe we'll give the audience one second. Okay, there's your one second. What is <laughs> the most powerful <laughs> sexual organ in your body? Casey, have you been reading? Your brain. It's your, your brain. brain. Yes, yes. And that is so, so important. And that speaks to, you know, creating that trust, creating that vulnerability with that other person, right? Being able to share your most innermost feelings and form a spiritual connection with that person. And I think that that, you know, so much of it, it's not people think that, you know, what we see on the media, what we see in the magazines, what we see in, you know, whatever, whether it's erotica or whatever, you know, whatever somebody's preferences, porn, whatever, it 
it focuses on the physical, right? And people are thinking like, oh, you know, you just get into it, you're in this relationship and everything's just going to happen so spontaneously, blah, blah, blah. And it doesn't. Really, what's the most important organ is your brain because your brain has to be into it, right? Your brain has to be in the moment. And again, like we talked about arousal, we talked about libido. If your brain is not in the physical act, you're going to think of it more as a chore, instead of something that you want, right? And anything that becomes a chore is just not going to be worth it. And one of my favorite authors is Emily Nagoski, and she talks about to want sex is to have sex worth wanting, right? And meaning that if you're not getting anything out of that experience, then you're definitely not going to want it. And I think a lot of women and definitely women that end up in like long-term relationships end up in that rut, where, you know, they're not being pleased, they're not experiencing pleasure. And so then they're really not wanting to have that physical intimacy that perhaps their partner desires. And maybe at one point they did, you know, they did enjoy, you know, their orgasm or the physical touch or whatever it may be. But now things have just changed, or maybe their bodies changed, right? Maybe they have some depression or anxiety that's been undiagnosed, and maybe they need treatment for that. Or maybe they have so many things going on. Maybe they're a single mom, and they're trying to deal with, you know, kids and laundry and food and job. And, and it's just, you know, and so now sex is just one more thing on their to do list, right? And so when it just becomes one more thing, they're not you're not really going to want it. And especially if you're not getting anything out of it. So I think that the most important thing is to try to reclaim your own sexuality and to see what you like, see what you don't like. And actually a friend of mine recently posted on Instagram, what is the age range for a woman to be, or actually rather what uh, age range is a woman most sexually satisfied. And so she put in, and I'm going to ask you ladies that. So she put in, you know, uh, A was between 20 to 30, B was 30 to 40, and C is, um, you know, 50 to 60. What, which age range do you think women are most sexually satisfied? Satisfied or most at their like sexual peak? Um, I guess you could say both. both. I mean, yeah. I'd say 30 to 40. What do you think, Casey? I'm going to go 40 to 50. Yeah. So it's actually the the oldest range that we have. So I don't know if I said 50, 40 50 to 50 60. or 50 to 60. Mm-hmm. The reason why that is, is because by this point, women know what they want. They're not willing to tolerate any BS. <laughs> they know <laughs> what they want. They know how they like to be pleasured. And they just are not willing to settle. Right. And they're definitely more confident at this point. You know, maybe early on, you know, they're a little bit unsure of themselves. They don't know. You know, they're they're prioritizing their partner, whatever. But as they get older, they're just like, screw this. You know, I know what I like. I know what I want. And this is what I want. And I'm not going to settle for anything less. And it's that confidence that then comes up. You know, so I think that it's really important to know what you want, because there's a, a basically a screening survey. It's called the female sexual response. Now, it's actually the female sexual satisfaction survey. And what that is, is that, you know, it's like a screening questionnaire that physicians can give to their female clients or their patients and ask them whether or not they're satisfied. And the thing that keeps coming up over and over in that screening survey is communication. Communication is definitely the most important thing between a couple. 
And the reason why that is, again, is that so that you can tell them what it is that you want, what it is that you like, so that you can both experience pleasure in that relationship and that, so that it's not one-sided. And I know, or I mean, maybe this isn't true, but I think it is, is that it's a lot harder for a female to have an orgasm during sexual intercourse than it is for a male. That's so, correct. And I personally just, you know, advocating for what you want comes with confidence and with age because I remember in my 20s like there was never a time when I would have you know said exactly what I wanted that would feel good for me it was just very much trying to please the man and not yeah Yeah. but I see as I get older I'm more like "Mm, nope I know exactly this is (laughs) what you need to do so get to work Exactly. So exactly what you're talking about in terms of, you know, that's called the orgasm gap where, you know, men will like with penile vaginal intercourse, men will orgasm like 80 to 90% of the time. Whereas Mm -hmm. women will only orgasm like, I think the statistic is like between 20 to 30% with penile vaginal intercourse alone. So that tells you that, you know, women need a lot of other stimulation, you know, whether it's clitoral stimulation, whether it's, you know, and there's so many other erogenous areas in the body on a female body. And so, you know, it's really important for a woman to know what it is that she likes so that she can tell her partner Mm -hmm. and to understand that the clitoris is the only organ in the human body that is solely its sole purpose is pleasure, sole purpose. And so it's really empowering for women to know that and to really then learn about it and then ask for what it is that they want, right? And there's different techniques. And, you know, we learned that really the clitoris is, has before uh, in science, they, they used to think that it had more than 8,000 nerve endings. And now mm-hmm. recent research that was just published last year, at the end of last year, it shows that there's greater than 10,000 nerve endings in the clitoris. And wow. so that's really important because, again, it wasn't until, I mean, it was literally last year, right? So that means that like female sexual health really wasn't a priority, right? Why is it Why is it that we have so many pills for like Viagra, right? For erectile dysfunction, we have Viagra, we have Cialis, we have, you know, I don't know, 50 other things, right? But for women, there aren't that many. And really only right now, currently there are two FDA approved medications for- I always see the commercial. What is it, Addy? Addy. Yes. Yes. There's Addy, which is a medication that helps with decreased libido. And there's also another one called Vilesi, which is, again, uh, another medication that is for a decreased libido. And so those are the two medications that are available on the market right now. But remember- Does insurance uh, cover those for people just out of interest? I think that you would have to, you know, check with your insurance company. I can't say for all. No, I'm just wondering more so because I'm like, it's like, I'm like, do they consider it? Oh, for like, yeah, yeah. Like a medical like, necessity, like the same way. Yeah. Like I, I mean, I'm on Viagra or Sildenafil for my fingertips because I have such bad Raynaud's and that's covered. Right. But I remember one time being at the counter I mean, I was obviously over listening to the person in front of me at the pharmacy. And it was like before Valentine's Day. And this guy really, like he wanted to pay for his Viagra. And it was like, I remember hearing the cost and it was like two tablets. And I was like, oh my God. And here I am like legit picking up for three times a day for three months. And I'm like, I should just hand this guy some. I mean, honestly. (laughs) (laughs) 
but I'm, I'm wondering like if they, they consider that like, like a medical necessity or they're like, Oh no, it's like getting Botox. Yeah. Like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you know, a lot of the insurances probably don't pay for it. I don't know exactly whether or not the insurance covers it, but I know that there is a pharmacy. It's called Phil's Pharmacy, and you can get a prescription, and it's a little bit um, – and actually, Addy, I guess they supply it to them. I went to a conference recently in March, and it was the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. It's called Ishwish, and um, the reps were there. Addy reps were there, and so were Vilesi reps. And they were talking about a pharmacy where you could get um, Addy for a little bit less than what um, you know what insurance covers. But it's unfortunate, right? Like a lot of times, women's sexual health is just not really researched. And really, the medications that we get just are too expensive. Like, for example, you know, vaginal estrogen, right? A lot of people are uh, saying that vaginal estrogen is really important, which it is for female sexual health as women get older in perimenopause and menopause, when you have a lot of vaginal dryness. And um, and that happens due to the decreased estrogen in our bodies because of menopause. And um, a lot of times insurance doesn't pay for it. If they pay for it, it's really expensive. Like your copay is like $200. And so now, um, you know, Mark Cuban, I'm sure everyone's heard of Mark Cuban. He has a pharmacy as well, and he provides discounted rates for medication. So I think like if you go on his pharmacy, vaginal estrogen is, I don't know, like 20 bucks or something like that. Like it's, it's crazy. And it's unfortunate that we have to do that, right? That you have to go around the system and that if you just go through your insurance, it's super expensive, but you have to go to an outside source. So it's just, it's frustrating. And, um, but unfortunately that's, I don't know, unless things change, you know, that's the way it is. But, but yeah, absolutely. The vaginal estrogen is super important as women get older. Isn't there something like you don't want to be on it too long or something for some kind of cancer risk? Is that so, so that's hormone therapy, right? And so basically the North American Menopause Society states that if you go on hormone therapy, the best time to go on hormone therapy is when the woman is less than 60 or within 10 years of menopause. And that actually now the benefits outweigh the risks. And so what happened is when I was in residency, the WHI study came out and that was in 2001. And with that study, what happened is that there were a whole generation of OBGYNs that just did not feel comfortable prescribing hormone replacement because that study came out and said, oh no, you know, you go on hormone replacement, you're going to get cancer, you're going to do this, that, and you know, women are going to get blood clots and and what they did is they basically took the study out of context and reported some of the results. And so then we never learned how to prescribe hormone therapy. And everybody was so scared of it. You know, when nobody wants to, I mean, which physician, you know, wants to give breast cancer to their patient, right? Or no, give them a stroke right. or all of those things. But now the pendulum has, has, you know, swung the other way where actually everybody is a huge proponent of hormones and saying how helpful they are for women. And that, that, that what the study was saying is not actually true. And that actually happens perhaps later on in life. And it, it can happen. And you basically, you have to talk to your physician. You have to talk about what your risks are, what your family history is. Mm. And each person is individual, right? You can't, it's not, women are not a monolith. You can't just say that, okay, you know, all women shouldn't go on hormone replacement. 
you basically have to have a discussion with your provider and see whether or not you're a candidate. And, um, you know, I will say that really the majority of women are candidates for hormone therapy. And we are noticing that hormone therapy is so important for our muscle mass, for our hair, for our libido, for our mental Mm -hmm. health, and for the brain fog that happens. Oh my God, it's awful. You know, I'm in perimenopause right now and it's just, you you know, you'll forget, like you'll be talking, all of a sudden you'll just literally forget (laughs) what you're saying and you'll be like, oh my God, this is awful. So. So yeah, I mean, you know, you just have to discuss it with your provider to see whether or not you're a candidate. But like I said, I really, I believe that most women are candidates. And really with vaginal estrogen, there is very, very limited risk, if any, with vaginal estrogen. And you could be on it for the rest of your life. And it it helps with basically preventing that thinning of that tissue in the vagina. It helps with... Um, it can help with lubrication. It prevents recurrent UTIs. You know, so it's so, so important. Oh, wow. To, yeah. So it's so important to be on vaginal estrogen as you get older, especially in, you know, the perimenopause and especially the menopause period. Okay. So I have two other things. I, I mean, I have a lot of things I want to ask, but I know that we don't have forever. But one yeah. thing I want to ask you about is... Um, just coming that I come from an Orthodox Jewish community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I feel like like we kind of like relate in that sense in terms of like I'm I guess what you'd call like modern Orthodox, you know, like I observe the Sabbath, do the different things, like, you know, there's like all these laws of sexuality. Yes. Um and I think I discussed this with you before. And you're in where are you located? You're in um I'm in New York. Yeah. And the area, aren't you in Scarsdale? Or did I make that up? Um, I'm in, yeah, I'm in Westchester County. Yeah. Okay. So I was like, okay, so you're probably hearing like a lot of Jewish women coming in with these different things as well as, and I'm sure it's the same in Islam as well. So, I mean, there's some similarities. So, you know, there's this misconception, or I mean, I do think that there has been things within, let's say Judaism, where it's like, you hear about like these matches you know like with a matchmaker and like there's like zero sexual chemistry and it's all about just like procreating and i i mean i'm sure within any religion or anything there's like this you know anyone who does anything like so radical whatever it is but actually like if people like read the text within judaism there's a lot of stuff about you know like a female being satisfied and a male satisfying a woman. And I think a lot of people just aren't educated on that. Is there different things like that within your religion as well? Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you asked that. So, you know, before I went into this whole kind of, I don't know, basically reinventing myself as this sex counselor and educator, um, you know, I was, I still am a gynecologist, OB, still delivering babies and stuff like that. But you know, I, I that did is so not. Cool. That is cool, by the way. Oh, <laughs> my uncle's an OBGYN, and he's like, he's like the most unenthused guy in general. And he's like, let me tell you, there's nothing more magical every time a baby comes out. Like, but he's like talks like that, and it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Anyways, it is. It is actually pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, no. So 
you know, I did not know that Islam is a very sex positive religion. I had no idea. I had no idea until I started looking into it that um, we have in Islam, you actually have um, sexual rights for both a man and a woman in Islam. And in Islam, you have like, if a man is basically, if he has an orgasm, he needs to be patient and make sure that the woman orgasms as well. And in Islam, women can actually divorce their husbands if they if they are not sexually satisfied. I mean, that's actually a valid reason for divorce. So no, like for sure, no one knows this stuff though, because even I mean, I like know I've heard the different things, but like even like pulling them up now about like in Judaism that a man should arouse his wife like during sex um, to ensure that she achieves an orgasm. Like, I mean, these things definitely are not spoken about on a regular yeah. basis, but I think like creating an awareness that, you know, that it can be something enjoyable for both parties. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And just, um, you know, same thing. And like in Islam, it says that, you know, that uh, before a, a man, you know, um, has sex with his wife, he should make sure that, you know, he has foreplay with her and gives her like hugs and kisses, whatever, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's all a big part of it. And just like what you're saying, Liat, is that, you know, not many people know about it or, and especially if they grow up in like, say a community that is very sex negative, or, you know, it says that sex is embarrassing, shameful, dirty, wrong, all those things, right. Then you're definitely not going to give yourself permission to look into it because you're going to be like, oh my gosh, if I find this out, you know, if I look up something, whatever, you know, maybe I'm doing something wrong, maybe. If, and especially if you're a religious person, you, you may be thinking that, you know, is, is, am I, I don't know, am I sinning or something like that? Right. And so it really is important to kind of find out, you know, and if, and I think especially if you are a religious person and if you think that, you know, sex is an important part of your life that to maybe just find out and see whatever it is, you know, that your religion is saying and, and when you know, you actually feel empowered and you actually feel like, wow, this is this is actually my sexual right. You know, like it's important for me to be pleased and experience orgasm and uh, to experience pleasure in a sexual relationship, you know. And so I think that, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think it's really important to. Yeah, to I just think people things. don't know. I mean, I know, Casey, every like when I was married, you know, there's a in Judaism, there's the laws of like when you can be having sex during the month and when you can't like around like a woman's period. And. Casey could not believe. She's like, what? You go to this like bath once a month? What the hell? What are you <laughs> doing? I'd be, like, I, I'd be like, I can't teach class tonight. It's during the exact sunset, like blah, blah, blah. And, you know, some of it, like I know like externally, or I guess to someone who has like no, like it seems crazy, but like when you actually like look like within religion, like there are some things that are set up to like actually enhance and like increase your intimacy, you know, by, you know, creating excitement, like building what we call that MO, um, yeah. motivating operation within our field and things like that. So I think it's interesting. And I think it's really cool that even if not every podcast you do is about religion and sexuality, for someone to be able to listen to that, Actually, and this actually brings up one funny story. I'll tell you this one thing. My mom reads Reader's Digest religiously. Or was it that? Or it wouldn't be on Good Morning America, the story I'm about to tell you. There was apparently like this couple like in China for a long time. And the lady like would go to the doctor and be like, eventually, like it was like, she'd be like, I'm just like so uncomfortable during sex, blah, blah, blah. 
anyways, long story short, it comes to like after her like going for a long time, like she was so un like uneducated within this area. He had been putting it in the wrong hole for like <gasps> all these years. Oh, <laughs> <Aww>, poor woman. <laughs> I'm sorry. To laugh. <laughs> That's horrible. And also hearing this story from my mom, I'm like, lol. <laughs> But no, but the, the, but I know it sounds funny, but like within like certain like traditional, like you're not talking about it. Yes, yes, and you know it's funny that you know that we're actually laughing about that that story. But I will tell you, as a gynecologist, there are so so many women that do not know or realize, and, and this is across the board. This is not any particular culture or anything like that, um, where women do not know their anatomy that they don't realize that they have three holes, that they're different holes for different things, right? But women don't know that. And um, and that's sad, actually, I think, because that t- says a lot about our, you know, sex ed curriculum, right? Like, what are we teaching during sex ed? Right. We, we're not even teaching anatomy to women, you know? <laughs> no. that's, that's awful. I mean, even within our own field, when you say, like, I mean, like, it sounds crazy to me that, like, these are literally the organs... <laughs> or parts of your body you're working with, and they're not, like, teaching you that sexuality training. But as well within our own field, like, I mean, we're working with, in, like, with behavior. Sexual behavior is a huge thing. And, like, sex is an unconditioned reinforcer that, like, it is natural, right? And mm-hmm. we're not trained in that either. Like, yeah. we're, like, and so when it comes to these individuals becoming, like, adults or – anything along those lines and like they're having like, you know, sexual urges, like, like you really have to go so out of your way to look for training in it, which now I'm happy we, we offer it on our, on our, in our CEUs, but it's the same thing. It's, we have a long way to go. Yeah. It's a taboo, right? It's taboo. You don't talk about it. Nobody, but then how are you supposed to help people if you, nobody knows anything about it? Nobody's teaching it. Right. Right. Okay. And my last thing I have here, sorry, I know I'm like going down my list. You spoke about something which I also thought behaviorally was interesting. You had spoken about, and you had told us some story or about, and for anyone listening and studying for the exam, this is pretty interesting. Uh, You had said something about someone having, let's say someone is, you said they could be not aroused. Mm. Do you see where I'm going with this? I need to remember. I do. I know exactly what you're talking about because okay. I just did a post on it. Um, I think I did me? a recent reel on it. Okay. We're talking about arousal and non-concordance, right? Mm-hmm. That's the word, non-concordance. Non-concordance, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So basically what that is, is um, – and this goes back to the brain, right? Ab- about the brain being the biggest sexual organ. So um, we're talking about the body being having a physiologic response to uh, a sexual image, or it could be like an erotic image or a story or whatever, whatever is happening. But so you your body has a physiologic response, but your brain is not uh, in it. Right. So here, so let's give an example. So um, I was reading about this um, story, and it's actually kind of a sad story about this 
boy, right? He's not a boy. So he was a man. So he's a man. He's in college and he's, you know, part of a frat house, whatever. And um, not that I'm, you know, um, generalizing, but it just happened, the story. So, um, you know, he sees, he witnesses uh, a woman getting raped. And what he notices is that his body is responding. So he's getting, you know, he's becoming aroused, even though in his mind, he's thinking that this is awful and witnessing an assault, right, on another human. And so he doesn't report the crime because he's thinking in his head that he was sexually aroused and that he liked, you know, so he was confusing what was happening in his body. So he was confusing the fact that his body was responding to an erotic stimuli, but his mind did not like what he was seeing. But because his body responded, he thought that he can't report it because he felt like he was part of the crime. Right. Um, Whereas, you know, sometimes when a woman or anyone, it could be right, say that you're in, you know, you're getting physically intimate with your partner and you are not lubricated down below, right? And so then your partner thinks that you are not aroused or that you don't want sex, uh, but your brain is saying that you do, but your body is not responding, Right. And so that can happen a lot of times that can happen with women a lot, especially when they go through perimenopause, menopause, or even their body, even if they're not in that stage of life, even if their body is just not making it for whatever, say if they have a medical condition or something like that, and their body just doesn't make that lubrication. Right. So she may want sex, uh, but is just not lubricated, or it could be the other way. Same thing, right? She could be uh, getting assaulted and she could be lubricated down below. And so the guy is saying, no, you want this. And she's saying, no, I don't want this. Um, And so that's a big problem, right? So the way that you resolve that issue is communication, is talking and explaining and explaining to people that just because your body is responding one way doesn't mean that you want it or you don't want it, right? Mm -hmm. And so talking to each other and, and making sure that everybody is on the same plane and that's where really consent comes in. Right. So that people are making sure that when they are physically intimate with their partner, that they are getting their consent, that they are making sure that the other person really does want to be physically intimate, that they want sex and, you know, penovaginal intercourse, whatever. Um, And that there is, you know, clear communication. And that, you know, and that can be in anything, any type of sexual play and making sure that you have safe words, um, you know, that where you, you tell a person to stop and they stop and, you know, and to go and go, whatever. But yeah, so that's what that is. Arousal non-concordance is basically when your body is responding physiologically, but your brain is not, is responding the opposite way. So for anyone studying, just to break this down behaviorally for you, I I wrote it down that um, the stimulus in the environment, let's say for this college guy, man, was whatever scene was going on. And he was having, it was uh, eliciting a respondent behavior, right? Like that's a behavior that's involuntary. So- but then I think if I'm putting this right and sorry if I'm sounding like I'm speaking a different language. Yeah, no, um, but because of Casey, tell me if I'm right, operant conditioning, like the association between this event, this individual didn't go and report anything because 
he was feeling like his respondent behavior, which ultimately he didn't have control over. It's the same as like, you know, your heart rate increasing or, you know, like blinking when something's in your eye. Um, would that be a good behavioral yeah. translation yeah, yeah. of it? Okay. So I was trying to figure out, see yeah, if I could make definitely. it fit. It's like that learning history, like you're learning that this is wrong, right? But so that's your operant side of what you've learned in life, but the respondent side of your behavior it's, you know, you're unable to control that. So right. communication, like she said, is exactly what you need to do. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So that's, that's actually a really big, um, very important point, I think. And something that I think that all um, kids and um, I think when we talk about consent, I think that's a key um, topic that should be covered, Right. So that like all genders understand what's happening and so that they can report assault if it happens. Um, and to know that just because something happened to them doesn't mean that they were enjoying it right. or that they liked it if that's not something that they wanted. Right. So, so before we go, I do want, where can people find you and what do you offer? Because I saw your website is beautiful, by the way. <laughs> I love yeah. it. Yeah. So I offer, um, right now I'm uh, doing telehealth. I just opened up my telehealth practice. So I cover sexual health, uh, issues regarding sexual health and, you know, perimenopause and menopausal health and the telehealth. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but so telehealth, the way that it works is that I have to be licensed in the state where mm -hmm. that patient is. So right now it's only New York and Michigan, uh, where I have uh, a state license to practice as a physician, but for coaching, I offer, um, sex coaching, intimacy coaching, and that can be national, international, and it doesn't have the same restrictions. So I work with women on that and, you know, some things such as like we talked about vaginismus or, um, sex negativity and things like that so that women can have that sexual confidence and find that pleasure in their relationships, which is very important. Um, and then people can find me. I'm on Instagram and TikTok at Dr. Sadaf OBGYN. I'm on YouTube at Dr. Sadaf Intimacy Coach. And I have, of course, my podcast, the Muslim Sex Podcast. And then my website, which is drsadaf.com. And we'll put it all in the show me. notes for yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. People can email me too at drsadaf at drsadaf.com. Well, thank you so much for your time today and your knowledge. I love your energy. So thank you for coming on. Yes. And thank you. I really appreciate your time and your energy and what you're doing. And thank you for having me on. This was so much fun. And Liette, we will have to get together again with both of you ladies and talk about religion. And sexuality. I think that, um, you know, you brought up a very good point. And uh, it's fun to take a look at the similarities and, totally. um, and just talk about it. And I find that all of that is very empowering for all women, whether or not you're religious, it doesn't matter, right? It's just interesting. Totally. It, you know, I, I went to a, like a seminary, I went to a seminary for a year um, after high school in Israel. And like every every topic I found the most interesting was like sexuality. So like I'd be like, oh, it's my free learning class. I'm going to learn about this. You know, I mean, sex interests people. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really uh, it's interesting. And there's lots <laughs> of good information to be had. Absolutely. So thank you. Thank you again. Thanks for your time. I appreciate it.
Of course. Thank you. All right, guys. You will get everything in the show notes. And you guys know where you can find us. You can find us on Instagram at Behavior Bitches Podcast, Facebook at Behavior Bitches Podcast, our website, behaviorbitches.com, where we love when you send us in different topics or guest recommendations or something you wish we'd cover if you're a cool guest. Or you could always just go on our website or Apple Review and leave us a five-star review. We love that. And that's all we have for you today. So as always, love ya. Mean it. Hey guys, it's Liat and Casey. We just want to take a second to let you know that if you're thinking of being a millennial like us and starting your own podcast, there is a way. You can do your show without having to become an audio editing and production wizard. Because guess what? We don't know shit with that. But we have Alan at Pretty Easy Podcast who help us get started. He records our shows. He posts them. He adds awesome, awesome music and cool shit when we don't even know what he's doing. He sends us teaser episodes. He does it all. We just sit here and friggin' talk. We shoot the shit and you can record from home, your office, the park, a bathroom stall at work. It doesn't matter. He provides the complete podcast studio. All you need is a microphone and you're good. Alan caters to your schedule and gives you a producer for your show at your beck and call. He has been super flexible with our schedule. Whenever we need him, we go to Google Calendar. We just book him and he does all the hard work. It's like so incredibly easy. That's why it's probably called Pretty Easy Podcast. So be heard and have some fun podcasting like us. Go to prettyeasypodcast.com today. 